and welcome to Scary to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. How are you this week? I had one of those weird weeks of extreme highs and lows, and now I'm going into a very busy week this week with my other normal job, quote unquote, so I'm tired. (laughs) You have no idea how amazing it is to be able to sit and talk to you and read you some scary stuff. An update on the kids episode. I'm shooting for next week sometime. Like I said, I will also come out with another regular adult episode that week. It may be a little shorter, but for those of you who may not be as interested in the kids stories, I wanted to have a little something for you as well. One of the extreme highs from last week was a package I received. Listener Amy Nazarov sent me a beautiful copy of the book, Ghostly Tales, Spine-Chilling Stories of the Victorian Age. And you guys know how much I love my Victorian ghost stories. She messaged me on Instagram after my last vintage horror episode and said she had a book with the story of the Phantom Coach in it. She so graciously decided to send me that book. If you follow me on Instagram, you'll see a few pictures of it and you'll see that I was so excited that I cried in the parking lot of the post office. It was my first listener mail ever. I couldn't help it. I was just so stoked that someone thought of me in a way to like send me a physical object. It was just, you know, it was a lot. I still cannot believe how much love I receive just from this podcast and from all of you. It means so much to me. Thank you so much again, Amy. I also promised Amy that I would read the first story of the book on the show. She said it was her favorite. So... Here is our story of the week. Oh, whistle, I'll come to you, my lad. I suppose you will be getting away pretty soon. Now full term is over, professor, said a person not in the story. To the professor of ontography. Soon after, they had sat down next to each other at a feast in the hospitable hall of St. James College. The professor was young, neat, and precise in speech. Yes, he said. My friends have been making me take up golf this term, and I mean to go to the East Coast. In point of fact, to Burnstow. I dare say you know of it. For a week or ten days to improve my game. I hope to get off tomorrow. Parkins, said his neighbor on the other side. If you're going to Burnstow, I wish you would look at the site of the Templar's preceptory and let me know if you would think it would be any good to have a dig there in the summer. It was, as you might suppose, a person of antiquarian pursuits who said this. But since he merely appears in this prologue, there's no need to give you his entitlements. Certainly, said Parkins, the professor. If you will describe to me the whereabouts the site is, I will do my best to give you an idea of the lie of the land when I get back. Or I could write to you about it if you would tell me where you are likely to be. Don't trouble to do that, thanks. It's only that I'm thinking of taking my family in that direction in the long, and it occurred to me that, as very few of the English preceptories have ever been properly planned, I might have an opportunity of doing something useful on off days. The professor, rather sniffed at the idea of planning out a preceptory, could be described as useful. His neighbor continued. 
The site, I doubt if there's anything showing above the ground, must be down quite close to the beach now. The sea has encroached tremendously, as you know, all along that bit of the coast. I should think from the map it must be about three quarters of a mile from the Globe Inn at the north of the town. Where are you going to stay? Well, at the Globe Inn, as a matter of fact, said Parkins. I have engaged a room there. I couldn't get in anywhere else. Most of the lodging houses are shut up in the winter, it seems. And as it is, they tell me that the only room of any size I can have is really a double-bedded one. And that they haven't a corner to which to store the other bed and so on. But, but I must have a fairly large room for I am taking some books down and mean to do a bit of work. And though I don't quite fancy having an empty bed... Not to speak of two, in what I may call for the time being my study, I suppose I can manage to rough it for the short time I shall be there. Do you call having an extra bed in your room roughing it, Parkins? said a bluff person opposite. Look here, I shall come down and occupy it for a bit. It'll be company for you. The professor quivered, but managed to laugh in a courteous manner. (laughs) By all means, Rogers, there's nothing I should like better. But I'm afraid you would find it rather dull. You don't play golf, do you? (laughs) No, thank heaven, said rude Mr. Rogers. Well, you see, when I'm not riding, I shall most likely be out on the links. And that, as I say, would be rather dull for you, I'm afraid. Oh, I don't know. There's certain to be somebody I know in the place. But, of course, if you don't want me, speak the word, Parkins. I shan't be offended. Truth, as you always tell us, is never offensive. Parkins was indeed scrupulously polite and strictly truthful. It is to be feared that Mr. Rogers sometimes practiced upon his knowledge of these characteristics. In Parkins' breast there was a conflict now raging, which for a moment or two did not allow him to answer. That interval being over, he said, Well, if you want the exact truth, Rogers, I was considering whether the room I speak of would really be large enough to accommodate us both comfortably, and also whether, mind I shouldn't have said this, if you hadn't pressed me, you would not constitute something in the nature of a hindrance to my work. Rogers laughed loudly. Well done, Parkins, he said. It's all right. I promise not to interrupt your work. Don't you disturb yourself about that. No, I won't come if you don't want me. But I thought I should do so nicely to keep the ghosts off. Here he might have been seen to wink and to nudge his next neighbor. Parkins might have also been seen to become pink. I beg pardon, Parkins. Rogers continued. I oughtn't to have said that. I forgot you didn't like levity on these topics. Well, Parkins said, as you have mentioned the matter, I freely own that I do not like careless talk about what you call ghosts. A man in my position, he went on, raising his voice a little, cannot, I find, be too careful 
about appearing to sanction the current beliefs on certain subjects. As you know, Rogers, or as you ought to know, for I think I have never concealed my views. No, you certainly have not, old man, put in Rogers sotto voce. I hold that any semblance, any appearance of concession to the view that such things might exist is equivalent to a renunciation of all that I hold most sacred, but I'm afraid I have not succeeded in securing your attention. Your undivided attention was what Dr. Blimber actually said, Rogers interrupted, with every appearance of an earnest desire for accuracy. But I beg your pardon, Parkins, I'm stopping you. Mr. Rogers was wrong, vide Dombe and son. No, not at all, said Parkins. I don't remember Blimber, perhaps he was before my time, but I needn't go on. Oh, I'm sure you know what I mean. Yes, yes, said Rogers rather hastily. Just so. We'll go into it fully at Burnstow, or somewhere. In repeating the above dialogue, I have tried to give the impression which it made on me, that Parkins was something of an old woman, rather hen-like perhaps in his little ways, totally destitute, alas, of the sense of humor, but at the same time dauntless and sincere in his convictions, and a man deserving of the greatest respect. Whether or not the reader has gathered so much, that was the character which Parkins had. On the following day, Parkins did, as he had hoped, succeed in getting away from his college and in arriving at Burnstow. He was made welcome at the Globe Inn, was safely installed in the large double-bedded room of which we have heard, and was able, before retiring, to rest, to arrange his materials for work in apple pie order upon a commodious table which occupied the outer end of the room and was surrounded on three sides by windows, looking out seaward. That is to say, the central window looked straight out to sea, and those on the left and right commanded prospects along the shore to the north and south, respectively. On the south you saw the village of Burnstow. On the north no houses were to be seen, but only the beach and the low cliff backing it. Immediately in front was a strip not considerable, of rough grass dotted with old anchors, capstans, and so forth, then a broad path, then the beach. Whatever may have been the original distance between the Globe Inn and the sea, not more than sixty yards now separated them. The rest of the population of the inn was, of course, a golfing one, and included few elements that call for a special description. The most conspicuous figure was, perhaps, that of an ancien militaire, secretary of a London club, and possessed of a voice of incredible strength and of views of a pronouncedly Protestant type. These were apt to find utterance after his attendance upon the ministrations of the vicar, an estimable man with inclinations towards a picturesque ritual, which he gallantly kept down as far as he could out of deference to East Anglian tradition. Professor Parkins, one of whose principal characteristics was pluck, 
spent the greater part of the day following his arrival at Burnstow in what he had called improving his game in company with this Colonel Wilson and during the afternoon. Whether the process of improvement were to blame or not, I am not sure. The Colonel's demeanor assumed a coloring so lurid that even Parkins jibbed at the thought of walking home with him from the links. He determined, after a short and furtive look at that bristling mustache and those incarnadined features, that it would be wiser to allow the influences of tea and tobacco to do what they could with the colonel before the dinner hour should render a meeting inevitable. I might walk home tonight along the beach, he reflected. Yes, and take a look. There will be light enough for that. At the ruins in which Disney was talking, I don't exactly know where they are, by the way, but I expect I can hardly help stumbling on them. This he accomplished, I may say, in the most literal sense, for in picking his way from the links to the shingle beach his foot caught, partly in a gorse root and partly in a biggish stone, and over he went. When he got up and surveyed his surroundings, he found himself in a patch of somewhat broken ground covered with small depressions and mounds. These latter, when he came to examine them, proved to be simply masses of flints embedded in mortar and grown over with turf. He must, he quite rightly concluded, be on the side of the preceptory he had promised to look at. It seemed not unlikely to reward the spade of the explorer. Enough of the foundations was probably left at no great depth to throw a good deal of light on the general plan. He remembered vaguely that the Templars, to whom this site had belonged, were in the habit of building round churches, and he thought a particular series of the humps or mounds near him did appear to be arranged in something of a circular form. Few people can resist the temptation to try a little amateur research in a department quite outside their own, if only for the satisfaction of showing how successful they would have been had they taken it up seriously. Our professor, however, if he felt something of this mean desire, was truly anxious to oblige Mr. Disney. So he paced with care at the circular area he had noticed, and wrote down its rough dimensions in his pocketbook. Then he proceeded to examine an oblong eminence which lay east of the center of the circle, and seemed to his thinking likely to be the base of a platform or altar. At one end of it, the northern, a patch of the turf was gone, removed by some boy or other creature ferae naturae. It might, he thought, be as well to probe the soil here for evidences of masonry, and he took out his knife and began scraping away the earth. And now followed another little discovery. A portion of soil fell inward as he scraped, and disclosed a small cavity. He lighted one match after another to help him see of what nature the hole was, but the wind was too strong for them all. By tapping and scratching the sides with his knife, however, he was able to make out that it must be an artificial hole in masonry. It was rectangular, and the sides, top and bottom, if not actually plastered, were smooth and regular. Of course, it was empty. No. As he withdrew the knife, he heard a metallic clink and when he introduced his hand, it met with a cylindrical object lying on the floor of the hole. Naturally enough, he picked it up, and when he brought it into the light, now fast fading, 
he could see that it, too, was of man's making. A metal tube about four inches long, and evidently of some considerable age. By the time Parkins had made sure that there was nothing else in the odd receptacle, it was too late and too dark for him to think of undertaking any further search. What he had done had proved so unexpectedly interesting that he determined to sacrifice a little more of the daylight on the morrow to archaeology. The object which he now had safe in his pocket was bound to be of some slight value, at least, he felt sure. Bleak and solemn was the view on which he took a last look before starting homeward. A faint yellow light in the west showed the links, on which a few figures moving towards the clubhouse were still visible. The squat Martello Tower, the lights of Aldsey Village, the pale ribbon of sands intersected at the intervals by black wooden groinings, the dim and murmuring sea. The wind was bitter from the north, but was at his back when he set out for the globe. He quickly rattled and clashed through the shingle, and gained the sand upon which, but for the groinings which had to be got over every few yards, the going was both good and quiet. One last look behind, to measure the distance he had made since leaving the ruined Templar's church, showed him a prospect of company on his walk. In the shape of a rather indistinct personage, who seemed to be making great efforts to catch up with him, but made little, if any, progress. I mean that there was an appearance of running about his movements, but that the distance between him and Parkins did not seem materially to lessen. So, at least, Parkins thought and decided that he almost certainly did not know him, and that it would be absurd to wait until he came up. For all that, company, he began to think, would really be very welcome on the lonely shore, if only you could choose your companion. In his unenlightened days, he had read of meetings in such places, which even now would hardly bear thinking of. He went on thinking of them, however, until he reached home, and particularly of one which catches most people's fancy at some time of their childhood. Now I saw in my dream that Christian had gone but a very little way when he saw a foul fiend coming over the field to meet him. What should I do now, he thought, if I looked back and caught sight of a black figure sharply defined against the yellow sky and saw that it had horns and wings? I wonder whether I should stand or run for it. Luckily, the gentleman behind is not of that kind, and he seems to be about as far off now as when I saw him first. Well, at this rate, he won't get his dinner as soon as I shall. And dear me, it's within a quarter of an hour of the time now. I must run. Parkins had, in fact, very little time for dressing. When he met the colonel at dinner, peace, or as much of her as the gentleman could manage, reigned once more in the military bosom. Nor was she put to flight in the hours of bridge that followed dinner, for Parkins was a more than respectable player. When, therefore, he retired towards twelve o'clock, he felt that he had spent his evening in quite a satisfactory way, and that, even for so long as a fortnight or three weeks, life at the Globe would be supportable under similar conditions. Especially, he thought, if I go on improving my game. 
As he went along the passages, he met the boots of the globe, who stopped and said, "'Beg your pardon, sir, but I was a-brushing your coat just now. There was a something that fell out of the pocket.' "'I put it on your chest of drawers, sir. In your room, sir. A piece of pipe or something of that, sir? Thank you, sir. You'll find it on your chest of drawers, sir. Yes, sir. Good night, sir.' The speech served to remind Parkins of his little discovery of that afternoon. It was with some considerable curiosity that he turned it over by the light of his candles. It was of bronze, he now saw, and was shaped very much after the manner of the modern dog whistle. In fact, it was. Yes, certainly it was. Actually, no more nor less than a whistle. He put it to his lips, but it was quite full of a fine, caked-up sand or earth, which would not yield to knocking, but must be loosened with a knife. Tidy as ever in his habits, Parkins cleared out the earth onto a piece of paper and took the ladder to the window to empty it out. The night was clear and bright, as he saw when he had opened the casement, and he stopped for an instant to look at the sea and note a belated wanderer stationed on the shore in front of the inn. Then he shut the window, a little surprised at the late hours people kept at Burnstow, and took his whistle to the light again. Why, surely there were marks on it. And not merely marks, but letters. A very little rubbing rendered the deeply cut inscription quite legible, but the professor had to confess, after some earnest thought, that the meaning of it was as obscure to him as the writing on the wall to Belshazzar. There were legends both on the front and on the back of the whistle. The one read thus, Fla, Fur, Beast, Flay. The other, Qui, Est, Iste, Qui, Venit. to be able to make it out, he thought, but I suppose I am a little rusty in my Latin. When I come to think of it, I don't believe I even know the word for a whistle. The long one does seem simple enough. It ought to mean, who is this who is coming? Well, the best way to find out is evidently to whistle for him. He blew tentatively and stopped suddenly startled and yet pleased at the note he had elicited. It had a quality of infinite distance in it, and, soft as it was, he somehow felt it must be audible for miles round. It was a sound, too, that seemed to have the power which many scents possess of forming pictures in the brain. He saw quite clearly for a moment a vision of a wide, dark expanse at night with a fresh wind blowing, and in the midst, a lonely figure. How employed, he could not tell. Perhaps he would have seen more had not the picture been broken by the sudden surge of a gust of wind against his casement, so sudden that it made him look up, just in time to see the white glint of a seabird's wing somewhere outside the dark panes. The sound of the whistle had so fascinated him that he could not help trying it once more, this time more boldly. The note was a little, if at all, louder than before, and repetition broke the illusion, 
no picture followed, as he had half hoped it might. But what is this goodness? What force the wind can get up in a few minutes? What a tremendous gust of hair. I knew the window fastening was no use. <sighs> I thought so. Both candles out. It is enough to tear the room to pieces. The first thing was to get the window shut. While you might count to twenty, Parkins was struggling with the small casement and felt almost as if he were pushing back a sturdy burglar. So strong was the pressure. It slackened all at once, and the window banged to and latched itself. Now to relight the candles and see what damage, if any, had been done. No, nothing seemed amiss. No glass even was broken in the casement. But the noise had evidently roused at least one member of the household. The colonel was heard to be stumping in his stockinged feet on the floor above and growling. Quickly as it had risen, the wind did not fall at once. On it went, moaning and rushing past the house, at times rising to a cry so desolate. As Parkins disinterestedly said, it might have made fanciful people feel quite uncomfortable. Even the unimaginative, he thought, after a quarter of an hour, might be happier without it. Whether it was the wind or the excitement of golf, or of the researches in the precipitory that kept Parkins awake, he was not sure. Awake he remained, in any case, long enough to fancy, as I am afraid I often do myself under such conditions, that he was the victim of all manner of fatal disorders. He would lie, counting the beats of his heart, convinced that it was going to stop work every moment, and would entertain grave suspicions of his lungs, brain, liver, etc. Suspicions which he was sure would be dispelled by the return of daylight, by which until then refused to be put aside. He found a little vicarious comfort in the idea that someone else was in the same boat, a near neighbor. In the darkness, it was not easy to tell his direction. It was tossing and rustling in his bed, too. The next stage was that Parkins shut his eyes and determined to give sleep every chance. Here, again, overexcitement asserted itself in another form, that of making pictures. Experto crede. Pictures do come to the closed eyes of one trying to sleep, and are often so little to his taste that he must open his eyes and disperse them. Parkins's experience on this occasion was a very distressing one. He found that the picture which presented itself to him was continuous. When he opened his eyes, of course, it went. But when he shut them once more, it framed itself afresh and acted itself out again, neither quicker nor slower than before. What he saw was this. A long stretch of shore shingle edged by sand and intersected at short intervals with black groins running down to the water a scene in fact so like that of his afternoon's walk that in the absence of any landmark it could not be distinguished therefrom the light was obscure conveying an impression of gathering storm late winter evening in slight cold rain on this bleak stage, at first no actor was visible. Then, in the distance, 
a bobbing black object appeared. A moment more and it was a man, running, jumping, clambering over the groins and every few seconds looking eagerly back. The nearer he came, the more obvious it was that he was not only anxious, but even terribly frightened. Though his face was not to be distinguished, he was moreover almost at the end of his strength. On he came. Each successive obstacle seemed to cause him more difficulty than the last. Will he get over this next one? thought Parkins. It seems a little higher than the others. Yes, half climbing, half throwing himself, he did get over, and fell all in a heap on the other side, the side nearest to the spectator. There, as if really unable to get up again, he remained crouching under the groin, looking up in an attitude of painful anxiety. So far, no cause whatever for the fear of the runner had been shown, but now there began to be seen, far up the shore, a flicker of something light-colored, moving to and fro with great swiftness and irregularity. Rapidly growing larger, it too declared itself a figure in pale, fluttering draperies ill-defined. There was something about its motion which made Parkins very unwilling to see it at close quarters. It would stop, raise arms, bow itself towards the sand, then run stooping across the beach to the water edge and back again, and then, rising upright once more, continue its course forward at a speed that was startling and terrifying. The moment came when the pursuer was hovering about from left to right, only a few yards from the groin where the runner lay in hiding. After two or three ineffectual castings hither and thither, it came to a stop, stood upright with its arms raised high, and then darted straight forward toward the groin. It was at this point that Parkins always failed in his resolution to keep his eyes shut. With many misgivings as to incipient failure of eyesight, overworked brain, excessive smoking, and so on, he finally resigned himself to light his candle, get out a book, and pass the night waking, rather than be tormented by this persistent panorama, which he saw clearly enough could only be a morbid reflection of his walk and his thoughts on that very day. The scraping of match on box and the glare of light must have startled some creatures of the night, rats or whatnot, which he heard scurry across the floor from the side of his bed with much rustling. Dear, dear, the match is out. Fool that it is. But the second one burnt better, and a candle and book were duly procured, over which Parkins poured till sleep of a wholesome kind came upon him, and that in no long space, for about the first time in his orderly and prudent life, he forgot to blow out the candle, and when he was called next morning at eight, there was still a flicker in the socket and a sad mess of guttered grease on top of the little table. After breakfast, he was in his room putting the finishing touches to his golfing costume, 
Fortune had again allotted the colonel to him for a partner, when one of the maids came in. Oh, if you please, she said, would you like any extra blankets on your bed, sir? Ah, thank you, said Parkins. Yes, I think I should like one. It seemed likely to turn rather colder. In a very short time, the maid was back with a blanket. Which bed should I put it on, sir? She asked. What? Why, that one, the one I slept in last night, he said, pointing to it. Oh, yes, I beg your pardon, sir, but you seem to have tried both of them. Leastways, we had to make them both up this morning. Really? How very absurd, said Parkins. I certainly never touched the other except to lay some things on it. Did it actually seem to have been slept in? Oh, yes, sir, said the maid. Why, all the things was crumpled and thrown about always, if you'll excuse me, sir. Quite as if anyone hadn't passed but a very poor night, sir. Dear me, said Parkins. Well, I may have disordered it more than I thought when I unpacked my things. I'm very sorry to have given you the extra trouble, I'm sure. I expect a friend of mine soon, by the way, a gentleman from Cambridge, to come and occupy it for a night or two. That will be all right, I suppose, won't it? Oh, yes, to be sure, sir. Thank you, sir. It's no trouble, I'm sure, said the maid, and departed to giggle with her colleagues. Parkins set forth with a stern determination to improve his game. I am glad to be able to report that he succeeded so far in this enterprise that the colonel, who had been rather repining at the prospect of a second day's play in his company, became quite chatty as the morning advanced and his voice boomed out over the flats. As certain also of our own minor poets have said, like some great Burdon in a minster tower, our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Extraordinary wind that we had last night, he said. In my old home, we should have said someone had been whistling for it. Should you indeed, said Perkins. Is there a superstition of that kind still current in your part of the country? I don't know about superstition, said the colonel. They believe it all over Denmark and Norway, as well as on the Yorkshire coast, and my experiences, mind you, that there's generally something at the bottom of what these country folk hold to and held to for generations. But it's your drive, 
or whatever it might have been, the golfing reader will have to imagine appropriate digressions at the proper intervals. When conversation was resumed, Parkin said, with a slight hesitancy, Apropos of what you were saying just now, Colonel, I think I ought to tell you that my own views on such subjects are very strong. I am, in fact, a convinced disbeliever in what is called the supernatural. What? said the colonel. Do you mean to tell me you don't believe in second sight, or ghosts, or anything of that kind? In nothing whatever of that kind, returned Parkins firmly. Well, said the colonel, but it appears to me at that rate, sir, that you must be little better than a Sadducee. Parkins was on the point of answering that, in his opinion, the Sadducees were the most sensible persons he had ever read of in the Old Testament, but feeling some doubt as to whether much mention of them was found in that work, he preferred to laugh the accusation off. <laughs> Perhaps I am, he said, but here, give me my clique, boy. Excuse me one moment, Colonel. A short interval. Now, as to whistling for the wind, let me give you my theory about it. The laws which govern winds are really not at all perfectly known. To fisher folk and such, of course, not known at all. A man or woman of eccentric habits, perhaps, or a stranger is seen repeatedly on the beach at some unusual hour and is heard whistling. Soon afterwards, a violent wind rises. A man who could read the sky perfectly, or who possessed a barometer, could have foretold that it would. The simple people of a fishing village have no barometers, and only a few rough rules for prophesying the weather. What more natural than that the eccentric personage I postulated should be regarded as having raised the wind, or that he or she should clutch eagerly at the reputation of being able to do so. Now, take last night's wind, as it happens. I myself was whistling. I blew a whistle twice, and the wind seemed to come absolutely in answer to my call. If anyone had seen me, the audience had been a little restive under this harangue, and Parkins had, I fear, fallen somewhat into the tone of a lecturer but at the last sentence, the colonel stopped. Whistling, were you? He said. And what sort of whistle did you use? Play the stroke first. Interval. About that whistle you were asking, colonel, it's rather a curious one. I have it in my... No, I see I've left it in my room. As a matter of fact, I found it yesterday. And then Parkins narrated the manner of his discovery of the whistle, upon hearing which the colonel grunted and opined that, in Parkins' place, he should himself be careful about using a thing that had belonged to a set of papists, of whom, speaking generally, it might be affirmed that you never knew what they might not have been up to. From this topic, he diverged to the enormities of the vicar, who had given notice on the previous Sunday that Friday would be the feast of St. Thomas the Apostle, and that there would be service at eleven o'clock in the church. This and other similar proceedings constituted in the colonel's view a strong presumption that the vicar was a concealed papist, if not a Jesuit, and Parkins, 
who could not very readily follow the colonel in this region, did not disagree with him. In fact, they got on so well together in the morning that there was not talk on either side of their separating after lunch. Both continued to play well during the afternoon, or at least well enough to make them forget everything else until the light began to fail them. Not until then did Parkins remember that he had meant to do some more investigating at the preceptory, but it was of no great importance, he reflected. One day was as good as another. You might as well go home with the colonel. As they turned the corner of the house, the colonel was almost knocked down by a boy who rushed into him at the very top of his speed, and then, instead of running away, he remained hanging on to him and panting. The first words of the warrior were naturally those of reproof and objurgation, but he very quickly discerned that the boy was almost speechless with fright. Inquiries were useless at first. When the boy got his breath, he began to howl and still clung to the colonel's legs. He was at last detached, but continued to howl. What in the world is the matter with you? What have you been up to? What have you seen? said the two men. I seen it wave at me out of the window, wailed the boy, and I don't like it. What window? said the irritated colonel. Come, pull yourself together, my boy. The front window it was, at the hotel, said the boy. At this point, Parkins was in favor of sending the boy home, but the colonel refused. He wanted to get to the bottom of it, he said. It was most dangerous to give a boy such a fright as this one had had, and if it turned out that people had been playing jokes, they should suffer for it in some way. And by a series of questions, he made out this story. The boy had been playing about on the grass in front of the globe with some others. They had gone home to their teas, and he was just going when he happened to look up at the front window and see it a-waving at him. It seemed to be a figure of some sort, in white as far as he knew. Couldn't see his face, but it waved at him, and it weren't a right thing, not to say not a right person. Was there a light in the room? No, he didn't think to look if there was a light. Which was the window? Was it the top one, or the second one? The second one it was. The big window. What got two little ones at the sides? Very well, my boy said the colonel after a few more questions. You run away home now. I expect it was some person trying to give you a start. Another time, like a brave English boy, you just throw a stone. Well, no, not that exactly, but you go and speak to the waiter or to Mr. Simpson, the landlord, and yes, and say that I advise you to do so. The boy's face expressed some of the doubt he felt as to the likelihood of Mr. Simpson's lending a favorable ear to his complaint. But the colonel did not appear to perceive this and went on. And here's a sixpence. No, it's, I see, it's a shilling. And you will be off home. And don't think any more about it. The youth hurried off with agitated thanks. And the colonel and Parkins went round to the front of the globe and reconnoitered. There was only one window answering to the description they had been hearing. Well, that's curious, said Parkins. It's evidently my window the lad was talking about. Will you come up for a moment, Colonel Wilson? We ought to be able to see if anyone has been taking liberties in my room. They were soon in the passage, and Parkins made as if to open the door. Then he stopped, 
and felt in his pockets. This is more serious than I thought, was his next remark. I remember now that before I started up this morning I locked the door. It is locked now, and what more is, here's the key. And he held it up. Now, he went on, if the servants are in the habit of going into one's room during the day when one is away, I can only say that well, that I don't approve of it at all. Conscious of a somewhat weak climax, he busied himself in opening the door, which was indeed locked, and in lighting candles. No, he said, nothing seems to be disturbed. Except your bed, put in the colonel. Excuse me, that isn't my bed, said Parkins. I don't use that one. But it does look as if someone has been playing tricks with it. It certainly did. The clothes were bundled up and twisted together in a most torturous confusion. Parkins pondered. That must be it, he said at last. I disordered the clothes last night in unpacking and they haven't been made since. Perhaps they came to make it and that boy saw them through the window and then they were called away and locked the door after them. Yes, I think that must be it. Well, ring and ask, said the colonel. And this appealed to Parkins as practical. The maid appeared and, to make a long story short, deposed that she had made the bed in the morning when the gentleman was in the room, and hadn't been there since. No, she hadn't no other key. Mr. Simpson, he kept the keys. He'd be able to tell the gentleman if anyone had been up. This was a puzzle. Investigation showed that nothing of value had been taken, and Parkins remembered the disposition of the small objects on the tables and so forth, well enough to be pretty sure that no pranks had been played with them, Mr. and Mrs. Simpson furthermore agreed that neither of them had given the duplicate key of the room to any other person whatever during the day, nor could Perkins, fair-minded man as he was, detect anything in the demeanor of master, mistress, or maid that indicated guilt. He was much more inclined to think that the boy had been imposing on the colonel. The latter was unwontedly silent and pensive at dinner throughout the evening. When he bade goodnight to Parkins, he murmured in a gruff undertone, You know where I am if you want me during the night. Why, yes, thank you, Colonel Wilson, I think I do. But there isn't much prospect of my disturbing you, I hope. By the way, yeah, did I show you that old whistle I spoke of? I think not. Well, here it is. The colonel turned it over gingerly in the light of the candle. Can you make anything of the inscription? asked Parkins as he took it back. No, not in this light. What do you mean to do with it? Oh, well, when I get back to Cambridge, I shall submit it to one of the archaeologists there and see what they think of it, very likely if they consider it worth having. I may present it to one of the museums. <clears throat> said the colonel. Well, you may be right, but all I know is... If it were mine, I should chuck it straight into the sea. It's no use talking, I'm well aware, but I expect that with you it's a case of live and learn. I hope so, I'm sure. And I wish you a good night. He turned away, leaving Parkins in 
act to speak at the bottom of the stair, and soon each was in his own bedroom. By some unfortunate accident, there were neither blinds nor curtains to the windows of the professor's room. The previous night he had thought little of this, but tonight there seemed every prospect of a bright moon rising to shine directly on his bed, and probably wake him later. When he noticed this, he was a good deal annoyed, but with an ingenuity which I can only envy, he succeeded in rigging up, with the help of a railway rug, some safety pins, and a stick and umbrella, a screen which, if only held together, would completely keep the moonlight off his bed. And shortly afterwards, he was comfortably in that bed. When he had read a somewhat solid work long enough to produce a decided wish to sleep, he cast a drowsy glance around the room, blew out the candle, and fell back upon the pillow. He must have slept soundly for an hour or more when a sudden clatter shook him up in a most unwelcome manner. In a moment, he realized what had happened. His carefully constructed screen had given way and a very bright, frosty moon was shining directly on his face. This was highly annoying. Could he possibly get up and reconstruct the screen? Or could he manage to sleep if he did not? For some minutes, he lay and pondered over all the possibilities. Then he turned over sharply, and with his eyes open, lay breathlessly listening. There had been a moment, he was sure in the empty bed on the opposite side of the room. Tomorrow he would have it moved, for there must be rats or something playing about in it. It was quiet now. No? The commotion began again. There was a rustling and a shaking. Surely more than any rat could cause. I can figure to myself something of the professor's bewilderment and horror For I have, in a dream, thirty years back, seen the same thing happen. But the reader will hardly, perhaps, imagine how dreadful it was to him to see a figure suddenly sit up in what he had known was an empty bed. He was out of his own bed in one bound and made a dash towards the window, where lay his only weapon, the stick with which he had propped his screen. This was, as it turned out, the worst thing he could have done. Because the personage in the empty bed, with a sudden, smooth motion, slipped from the bed and took up a position with outspread arms between the two beds and in front of the door. Parkins watched it in a horrid perplexity. Somehow, the idea of getting past it and escaping through the door was intolerable to him. He could not have borne, he didn't know why, to touch it. And as for its touching him, he would sooner dash himself through the window than have that happen. It stood for the moment in a band of dark shadow. He had not seen what its face was like. Now began to move in a stooping posture, and all at once the spectator realized, with some horror and some relief, that it must be blind, or 
seemed to feel about with its muffled arms in a groping and random fashion. Turning halfway from him, it became suddenly conscious of the bed he had just left and darted towards it, and bent and fell over the pillows in a way which made Parkin shudder as he had never in his life thought it possible. In a very few moments, it seemed to know the bed was empty, and then moving forward into the area of light and facing the window, it showed, for the first time, what manner of thing it was. Parkins, who very much dislikes being questioned about it, did once describe something of it in my hearing and I gathered what he chiefly remembers about it is a horrible, an intensely horrible face of crumpled linen. What expression he read upon it, he could not or would not tell, but that the fear of it went nigh to maddening him is certain. But he was not at leisure to watch it for long. With formidable quickness, it moved into the middle of the room, and, as it groped and waved, one corner of its draperies swept across Parkins's face. He could not, though he knew how perilous the sound was, he could not keep back a cry of disgust, and this gave the searcher an instant clue. It leapt towards him upon the instant, and the next moment he was halfway through the window backwards, uttering cry upon cry at the utmost pitch of his voice, and the linen face was thrust close into his own. At this, almost the last possible second, deliverance came. As you will have guessed, the colonel burst the door open and was just in time to see the dreadful group at the window. When he reached the figures, only one was left. Parkins sank forward into the room in a faint, and before him on the floor lay a tumbled heap of bedclothes. Colonel Wilson asked no questions, but busied himself in keeping everyone else out of the room and in getting Parkins back to his bed, and himself, wrapped in a rug, occupied the other bed for the rest of the night. Early on the next day, Rogers arrived, more welcome than he would have been a day before, and three of them held a very long consultation in the professor's room. At the end of it, the colonel left the hotel door, carrying a small object between his finger and thumb, which he cast as far into the sea as a very brawny arm could send it. Later on, the smoke of a burning ascended from the back premises of the globe. Exactly what explanation was patched up for the staff and visitors at the hotel, I must confess I do not recollect. The professor was somehow cleared of the ready suspicion of delirium tremens and the hotel of the local reputation of a troubled house. There is not much question as to what would have happened to Parkins if the colonel had not intervened when he did. He would have either fallen out of the window or else lost his wits. But it is not so evident. What more the creature that came in answer to the whistle could have done than frighten? There seemed to be absolutely nothing material about it save the bedclothes of which had made itself a body. 
The colonel who remembered a not very dissimilar occurrence in India was of the opinion that if Parkins had closed with it, it could really have done very little, and that its one power was that of frightening. The whole thing, he said, served to confirm his opinion of the Church of Rome. There's really nothing more to tell, but as you may imagine, the professor's views on certain points are less clear-cut than they used to be. His nerves, too, have suffered. He cannot even now see a surplice hanging on a door quite unmoved, and the spectacle of a scarecrow in a field late on a winter afternoon has cost him more than one sleepless night. Thanks for listening. Remember, if you have a scary story, true or fictional, or know someone who does and would like to have it on the show, email it to scaryoutosleep at gmail.com. You can also visit my website, scarytosleep.com, and use the contact form to request different soothing sounds to be played over the end of the show. Today, I'm using a recording of the rain I took a few months back. It's typical rain in Los Angeles, as you can hear distant sirens and cars driving by, but I find it really relaxing, and I hope you do too. On to my amazing Patreon subscribers. A huge thank you to Connor Rosing, Michelle Heron, and Leanne. Welcome to the Patreon family, and I hope you're already enjoying some of the bonus episodes I have there. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram, at ScaryToSleep. Oh, and on Instagram, I posted some spooky pictures I was sent by Sam, the person who sent in the story last week about the haunted homeless shelter, so check those out. You can also join the Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash ScaryToSleep. I think that's all for now, everyone. Now, go get some sleep. Sweet dreams. <laughs>